for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Before we start, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Please visit our website, pcics.org, uh, where we can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on education resources, meeting, job listening, and much more. My name is Grace Bichara from Sabara Children's Hostel in Brazil, and I'm a member of the PCICS Connections Committee. Today, I have the opportunity to interview Dr. Joseph Forbes from Ludi Children's Hospital in Chicago and Dr. Jan Yerebakan from Children's National Heart Institute in Washington, D.C. They were the moderators of a very interesting session at the PCICS meeting in Miami this past December, where contemporary approaches to the single ventricle neonate was discussed. They are pediatric cardiac surgeons and have no disclosures about the subject. Thank you so much for joining. So I was so interested to hear all the presentations of the session at the PCICS meeting. Can you start tell, telling me uh, a little about your approach to the hypoplastic left heart syndrome neonates, including the fetal period? Uh, thank you very much, Grace. Um, John and I, uh, felt it was very important, uh, particularly for uh, this meeting, uh, to look at the, uh, what we would consider the higher risk category of patients with hypoplastic left heart syndrome because those are the patients where surgeons and intensivists really have to come together to try and achieve uh, uh, better results. And uh, since the results of quote-unquote usual risk uh, Norwoods and hypoplastic left heart syndrome patients have improved so dramatically over, say, the past uh, uh, two decades or more, uh, we focused on this higher risk group. The session initially started with Wayne Tureski uh, talking about uh, his approach to trying to mitigate uh, risk, and that's by making these patients a biventricular uh, uh, setup and uh, enacting a fetal intervention where one can uh, dilate the aortic valve and potentially, uh, quote unquote, resuscitate uh, the left ventricle. And Jen, what do you have to tell about uh, about the meeting? Okay, so um, we uh, have talked uh, about contemporary approaches uh, for the single ventricle in this um, session. And um, I think um, that was a very productive session by showing us different approaches uh, and different uh, actually contemporary approaches to, um, to the single ventricle. And actually, um, it showed us uh, that the treatment of the a complex single ventricle uh, starts uh, prenatally, and we can do a lot uh, prenatally to optimize these patients uh, for a postnatal um, approach. Uh, whereas uh, Joe already mentioned, Dr. Tureski showed his uh, his strategies, and um, I think important aspects of um, difficult interventions uh, were uh, mentioned by uh, Dr. Nugent, um, and uh, subsequently uh, we were able to talk about. Uh, alternative approaches to hypoplastic left heart syndrome, its variants by uh, Dr. Vilsirian and uh, Dr. Glantovich. Good. And how can we approach the septum uh, during the fetal life? Well, I think, uh, as in Wayne's talk, uh, you heard that uh, they can use both simple balloon technique as well as placement of a stent. Uh, I would say that the stent is being used, it seems, uh, more and more at the, the, the handful of programs around North America, at least, that are, that are uh, uh, doing this. Uh, Wayne mentions that uh, the goal of a fetal intervention for uh, an intact or highly restrictive atrial septum 
is largely to make the patient a better candidate in the early uh, postnatal uh, period. Hearing Alan uh, give his spin, and I would, I would confess it's our spin because he and I collaborated on these patients uh, and still do, uh, is that uh, Alan's approach is to have what he calls the quote-unquote fire drill uh, team ready uh, in the immediate uh, uh, delivery uh, setting uh, and get the patient to the cath lab uh, within minutes, open up the atrial septum. Uh, he feels it is important to avoid cardiopulmonary bypass uh, and or ECMO. Uh, the vast majority of those patients achieve a stent uh, because it's been our philosophy to widely open the atrial septum to not leave any restriction uh, and then marry that uh, interventional uh, atrial septal uh, uh, approach to the, the very early placement of pulmonary artery bands, usually, uh, quote unquote, as early as we think we can band them based on their saturations, uh, which is uh, at, at times within hours of opening up the, the intraatrial septum. And we've seen dramatic uh, uh, changes in the chest X-ray where the patients will have a pulmonary venous obstructive uh, picture. Uh, their chest X-ray does not improve after you open up their uh, intraatrial septum and they hemodynamically are fairly overcirculated at that point with low diastolic pressures. And then when you place the bands, uh, you, can, uh, you can really improve the, what the chest x-ray looks like. The, the pulmonary performance uh, improves uh, quite a lot in the vast majority of patients, and uh, we, we've, we've published those results. And so we've taken a slightly different approach than the Boston uh, group, which has tried to address this prenatally. Uh, we've done it with a very aggressive postnatal approach, opening up the atrial septum and then following on very closely with pulmonary artery bands. Good, and what about the candidates for hybrid approach and norexano approach? What do you think about it? If Should every baby go to hybrid, every baby should go to norexano, or we have to mix it? Well, as we uh, saw in the session, uh, this is still a subject uh, of discussion, uh, and there is no definite answer for that. Um, and as we look at the experience worldwide, um, there are a couple of centers um, which use the hybrid approach as the sole approach for um, for the uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome and variants. Um, one of the centers is um, uh, in Germany, where I come from originally, um, um, uh, is uh, Gießen um, um, Heart Center, and um, the other one is the nationwide um, Ohio um, in, in the United States. Otherwise, uh, most centers prefer to use the hybrid procedure for the high-risk babies, and um, since um, my arrival in the United States, um, I actually started to use the hybrid procedure also for high-risk babies. I am a little bit biased in this, in this discussion, so that you know, we have been using the hybrid procedure successfully for the last um, 20 years almost for all hypoplasts. And we have shown in our um, you know, papers that it can be done, um, at least with equal results, to a successful um, classical Norwood-type program. However, again, having the experience in, the, in Germany and in the United States, I have to confess that there are uh, particular differences in terms of the interventional treatment of these patients. In example, this is... Um, type of the stents, uh, use of the stents, and uh, access to the patient, which makes particularly the interventional procedure more risky and um, can also complicate the further course of the patient. So that um, I can conclude that um, I think for now, when we talk 
about the environment in the United States, it's very reasonable for a large volume center to uh, use the hybrid approach for high-risk patients um, to make them better candidates, either as a bridge to a classical pap normal operation, or if the experience with the comprehensive stage two operation is already existent, um, to go forward with the comprehensive later comprehensive stage two operation by placing a stent, or uh, leaving the patients occasionally also on prostaglandin infusion for a, for a longer time to do maybe a earlier comprehensive stage two gland operation. I would like to add that our approach has been to place bilateral pulmonary artery bands, and I use those that, that term selectively because we, we've started to be highly selective about who will actually place a, a, a PDA stent in. And the, the groups that where we've tried to mitigate risk with bilateral pulmonary artery bands have been the patients who have no fetal diagnosis and they, they enter your center very ill. Uh, and so we've used resuscitative pulmonary artery bands, and that was one of the first groups that, that in Texas we, we found that we could mitigate that risk dramatically. Then we kind of moved on at, uh, around the same time to the intact atrial septum population. Once they'd had their septum opened, we noticed that their diastolic pressures were low, their lungs were, were very wet, but they were wet from not from pulmonary venous obstructive disease, they were wet from uh, excessive circulation. Uh, so we would place bands in those patients. Uh, extra cardiac syndrome patients, you could avoid doing uh, the pump run Norwood uh, in the neonatal period. Uh, I think one of the more common groups that we've been uh, placing the bilateral pulmonary artery bands in now is this uh, low birth weight, uh, young gestational age uh, uh, grouping, uh, where we can grow them up to a more appropriate uh, size. One of the things that we've uh, discovered is that you can place those bilateral pulmonary artery bands in the 1.4, 1.5 kilogram child uh, and quote unquote grow them up. Uh, perform a conventional Norwood uh, when they're of a weight of your choosing. If you're going to do a Sano for a patient who's got aortic atresia, uh, we would do that when they achieve something around three kilograms. Uh, one of the things I'd like to do is avoid the, the, the Sano incision in the right ventricle for variants that are, are, are say, uh, double right ventricle with mitral atresia or an unbalanced canal where they do have anti-grade flow up their ascending aorta and their ascending aorta is sizable. I'll actually grow them to about 4.5 kilograms and then do a blalock talsic uh, shunt uh, Norwood on them at that time. At that body size, they're less likely to have circulatory imbalance. Uh, the results have been uh, uh, pretty favorable in that group. Uh, so that allows you to take a patient that's you know 31 weeks gestation, 1.5 kilograms, and, and, and see them through. The hospital stays are, are prodigiously long, however. Uh, I'd like to ask John, if you do have a 1.5 kilo child or a 1.8 kilogram child, at what size would you put the PDA stent in? We've, we've just left a pick line in and, and given them prostaglandins uh, because we, I discovered early on that if you place a PDA stent in a very small child, you're going to have to, you know, there's going to be a repeat intervention necessary to get them bigger. I completely agree. Um, these are very difficult patients. So my our preference, uh, let's start with the high-risk patients. So we have our criteria to select patients for the classical type Norwood versus the hybrid procedure. Um, so as Joe actually uh, nicely uh, pointed out, um, all patients with uh, prematurity, um, uh, patients with a birth weight below 2.5 kilograms, preoperative uh, circulatory uh, shock uh, with pyelactate levels, um, uh, extra cardiac anomalies, uh, chromosomal anomalies. Um, these patients actually um, would uh, would make up our um, our high risk population. Uh, coming to uh, the 1.5 kilograms, uh, my my own preference is 
to uh, place uh, the bands and the stand at the same time. Since in the United States we do not have the opportunity to use the approach through the groin to place a retrograde stand to the PDA, um, which is available actually um, in, in Europe, um, um, so that we go to our hybrid room and I would uh, first place bands um, bilaterally and um, enable access for our uh, cat theme um, through the main PA and um, uh, place a stand. It's correct that these patients uh, will need further interventions. One reasonable approach, I think, is certainly particularly in term in patients with um, aortic atresia to leave the, these patients on uh, prostaglandin. Since I prefer the comprehensive stage two operation, I prefer the stand to be there, and I, I feel comfortable to remove the stand um, in the comprehensive stage two, so that um, we have a potential uh, opportunity to send the patients home in the interstage with bands and stand. These are very challenging patients, and as I always say, is the hybrid approach is not the. Uh, optimal solution for these patients. A hybrid approach will uh, probably buy survival and pay it with interventions. Um, and we have to be prepared for in more interventions in these patients and um, more problems with interstage. But we can enable uh, survival in even highest risk patients uh, in the hyperplastic left heart group. John, if you have a patient who's got, uh, who is that 1.7 or 2 kilogram child with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and they have a typically mildly restrictive, you know, usual sprung patent frame ovale, how do you gauge the timing of when you do the balloon atrial septostomy for those patients to set them up uh, for their growth period? I think we, we should intervene in the interatrial septum right away mm -hmm. um, and this should be done if the interatrial septum is restrictive or small or we have the suspicion that it will get smaller over time then we should intervene at the time of the bands, mm -hmm. right away in the cat lab, um, and it should be opened up. And my personal preference would be here a stent, yeah. because uh, you know in that way we could uh, potentially avoid more interventions just only because of the intrauterine septum. Um, um, and um, this would be this would be our approach. Yeah. If we if we have a, a patient who comes to us with an umbilical venous line. Uh, that is nicely positioned low in the, uh, the, the right atrium. We, we have not taken the approach of doing it right away, but we do it before the life of that umbilical venous line is over. Okay. Uh, and you know, so we'll do a, a balloon atrial septostomy. Mm -hmm. And we have found that if you, if, you, if you do tear that septum with a balloon very early, even if they're quite small, that they, they, keep, their, they keep a large uh, atrial septal defect downstream uh, uh, you know, on, their, uh, on their timeline towards more definitive uh, palliation. We will stent if we need to, and, and, but we learned our lesson that if you leave it, if you leave the ASD in place, the septum's going to thicken up, and you, then, it's a, then it's a fait accompli. You're going to have to put a, a, a stent in. So we do try to intervene while they're a quote-unquote true neonate, and we can get a good tear of that atrial septum. So do you think every baby should have a septostomy? Well, if you're going to if they're going to be a single ventricle patient, yes. yeah, there's the, there's the, there's the, there's the other smaller <laughs> subset where uh, gaining some restriction uh, and feeding the left side, feeding the systemic ventricle is actually a, a, a part of the design, 
but that's a, that's a whole different mm -hmm. topic yeah. as far as uh, these bilateral pulmonary artery bands trying to grow mm -hmm. a patient who is too small, uh, deemed too small or too, too young for a, a very complex operation like a Roscono arch or something like that, then you, you, you want their atrial septal defect to be restrictive uh, on purpose. This is actually a very interesting subset of the patients, and, and I think I uh, really enjoy treating these patients with the hybrid approach because you can uh, nicely follow their physiology over time and uh, make uh, changes in their, um, in their hemodynamics uh, and see that in their clinical picture. And these are, these are the patients with uh, so-called borderline uh, left heart mm -hmm. uh, where um, um, we may not be sure uh, in the start to know whether they go the single or uh, biventricular pathway. And one, it's very important to deal with their intraatrial septum uh, to know how restrictive it can be and how open it should be. And second, of course, um, to observe them over time with the growth of the left ventricle. There is no scientific evidence for now that we can grow the left ventricle for the, uh, with the hybrid approach, but the hybrid approach in these patients gives you, doesn't burn any bridges and gives you every other opportunity yeah, down the sure. road to go for a biventricular circulation if possible. You can go to univentricular palliation. If the patient's heart function is over the time deteriorated, then you can go for heart transplantation. I think the other way around to treat these patients right away uh, as a bi approach, as a risky approach, uh, that will burn actually a lot of bridges. And these may patients may not be any candidate for a single ventricle palliation or a heart transplantation. And this, these patients have the worst prognosis of, of all yeah. of them if a wrong decision is made towards the biventricular approach in the start. I think, you know, Dr. Gulsarian made a good point when she uh, mentioned that in the, in the patients that are, whether you're think, thinking two ventricles or, you know, the more you know, common group is the single ventricle, those that do not respond to what she calls, you know, optimization of QPQS, uh, that's who you need to be thinking about transplanting uh, uh, fairly early, uh, and several uh, centers have, have, have published on that. Um, she did also mention, and I think John would agree, that the longer you are banded uh, in this bilateral PA band or hybrid uh, Norwood-type world, the difficulties that you're going to have long-term with um, bilateral pulmonary artery stenosis, although it's usually the left pulmonary artery seems to be the bad actor, can be a, can be a problem. And, uh, so I think various surgeons and centers uh, around the world have come up with their uh, individual preferences about how to deal uh, with the residua uh, of, of the bilateral pulmonary artery bands. We had done bilateral pulmonary artery bands years back for things like truncus, and it, it was not uh, something that was that attractive. We've, we've created something again. We've re re recapitulated that, and it's not attractive uh, at times, but it allows the patients to survive, and then they become patients who need pulmonary artery work. Um, well, I mean, it's what I appreciate that I, um, I agree with all thoughts. Um, I, I think uh, um, if you look back 20 years back uh, with the experience of the Norwood type, classical Norwood type palliation, um, there were a lot of difficulties uh, the surgeons uh, faced with. And, you know, over the time, stage one um, uh, survival of uh, 85, 90 percent, uh, which is possible nowadays. I think with the growing uh, experience, uh, particularly in the comprehensive stage two operation worldwide, we will be able to deal with these issues, in example, with the left pulmonary artery and the chronic uh, effects of the pulmonary artery bands on the uh, on the pulmonary artery. I think um, there is more 
research um, and experience needed to solve these problems. I personally think that the comprehensive stage two operation gives the patient a, a perfect type of uh, um, stable circulation um, at four to six months of age and uh, all subsequent problems with pulmonary artery, etc., can be dealt with interventional uh, procedures. And, um, you know, if there is a stand in the pulmonary artery in the comprehensive stage two, uh, after comprehensive stage two, uh, since the patient will come back for the, for the Fontana operation, we can always reconstruct the pulmonary arteries and get rid of the stent. And we have shown also with, the, with our previous work that um, even with the band and comprehensive stage two operation, both pulmonary arteries show uh, adequate growth um, towards the Fontana between the stage two and the Fontana operation. In conclusion, I think that we need a little bit more experience in patients with the comprehensive um, stage two operation in order to achieve um, maybe similar result. In terms of the intervention burden, um, which is pretty low after a novel type palliation in terms of the pulmonary arteries. And when do you think is the best timing for the comprehensive second stage? Um, so um, th there is there is no golden uh, you know golden rule for that, but we prefer to have the patients at about four to six months of age, around five kilograms. At that point we do it, but it differs in every patient. So I'm actually not the one who would think for every baby the same treatment. So sometimes you have to uh, modify your approach and uh, make it appropriate for the for the particular patient. Uh, but in general, we can say that's between four to six months of age and five kilograms. Whereas if we're borderline left ventricles, you can give these patients using other strategies more time up to up to eight months to do your second stage uh, biventricular repair, uh, which uh, we have done um, successfully in many patients um, back in Germany. I think I think John would agree. In North America, it seems like myself and most of my colleagues have bounced off of the comprehensive stage two and are doing an intervening uh, large sh BT shunt, quote unquote, conventional Norwood. I've been much happier with that, uh, with the thought that, you know, driving high pressure blood flow into these lung, the, these pulmonary arteries that have been banded is, you know, perhaps optimal. The patients handle uh, the BT shunted uh, physiology uh, much better when they're five kilograms, four and a half kilograms. And uh, one of the, the, the thoughts that I've had is, if I can grow these patients uh, into a safer range to do a BT shunt, then I'm not giving them a, a right ventriculotomy that's going to hurt them longer term down the road, as we're seeing from like the SVR trial and others. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, a right ventriculotomy is, you know, the sono operation is a good, robust operation early after the op after the surgery, but three, four, five years down the road, we're clearly seeing you know systemic ventricular dysfunction from that. And so, if I have patients that have a sizable ascending aorta with some degree of uh, anti-grade flow if their aortic valve is patent uh, and they were very small and I banded them, I will grow them uh, beyond a conventional Norwood size and do a delayed BT shunted Norwood to try and avoid uh, doing the sano. If, however, they're mitral atresia, aortic atresia with a 1.5 millimeter ascending aorta and I've banded them when they're 1.8 kilograms, I'll just grow them to about three kilograms and do a conventional Sano, because given their aortic size, I, I'm not too interested in doing a BT shunt on them anyway. Uh, and I think, I mean, having seen many centers worldwide, and you know, um, also working with many surgeons, um, there is there is no wrong and right, uh, generally conventional anti-sync. You know, 
that's that's the right thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. I think for every century, right and wrongs are different. Um, so I think every surgeon has uh, his own preferences, and every center has uh, its own preferences. I think uh, as long as uh, conventional noble type palliation uh, can be done after having the patient bridged to a classical type noble operation with band, completely fine. And um, the most important thing is the patient the survival yeah. of the patient. Wh how you do that? It's your preference, and if you can do it safely, I mean, there is no, there is, uh, there is no reason to say, oh, this is the wrong approach right. to do. Um, you just have to feel. I think most one critical aspect is though that we know it's a we don't know how long it is, but there's a vulnerable period after uh, the birth uh, in the neonatal period where the brain is susceptible for, uh, for a damage uh, when we use the cardiopulmonary bypass, particularly uh, in these patients. And um, if we are beyond this period for these very small patients, um, I think you should be uh, safe in terms of the also neurodevelopmental outcome of this patient, which is an important aspect nowadays. Um, to do either of that, either prolong the patient to the comprehensive stage two operation, if you can do it safely, or um, choose a time point to do a classical type, um, novel type operation with um, with a petitioned uh, expert. But um, this is this is completely fine, and it, it, if it works out, it works out. And, um, and I think um, I think we have to make it dependent on the center's experience and patients. And, and that's a nice thing about being in the PCICS meeting because we can discuss all of this and see how different centers do things differently and yeah. they have great results yeah. as well. So well, uh, it's very good. Well, I think you know, the, the small number of comprehensive stage twos that I did, I saw them to be very taxing. You know, they're, they're difficult glens to, to weather through in the post-op period. And, and so I wanted to ask John, you know, and for our audience, which is largely going to be uh, intensive care unit doctors, are there any particular maneuvers or strategies that you take on for these patients that have been on pump a lot longer than a usual Glenn, mm -hmm. their heart has been clamped a lot longer than a usual Glenn. What, what sorts of things do you do to, to, to weather them through that? Uh, in the comprehensive stage two operation, I think I would, I, I would think everybody does it differently. So I try to reduce my uh, cardiac, cardiac arrest as much as possible. Uh, that means uh, all of the work of the comprehensive stage two operation, including the uh, PA reconstruction, debanding, uh, gland anastomosis, um, um, are done on BT cart. In any patient with anterograde flow or not anterograde flow, doesn't matter. So I do it on BT cart, and just the work on the arch we will do uh, with selective cerebral perfusion at 28 degrees Celsius, um, and um, that's one strategy I use. This is to reduce the uh, cardiac burden of the VVs. Second, um, we try to uh, avoid patch material in the PAs as, as much as possible. Um, um, and if it's, it's required to use, um, to use native patch material. What I do in this stage one is when I do the bands in these patients, I do a very limited pericardiotomy uh, which seems unimportant. It's important in a way that I can close the pericardium completely after the stage one operation. That gives me one, uh, an easier access second, uh, in the second stage. Two, uh, pericardial patch material to use, native material to use in the second uh, stage operation, and healthy material. And uh, the patient will have uh, minimal adhesions in, inside the pericardium. Some patients really just have as native 
uh, intracurricular space. So which, which makes the operation uh, easier, which is one of the strategies actually I use to make the operation itself easier, to the, the section easier. In terms of pulmonary, the right pulmonary artery is most of the times not a big problem since the Glen Armstrong actually sits on the bending sides most of the time. The left pulmonary artery, as obvious, is our problem. Um, and uh, for now, I try to, uh, when I dilate the PA's band sides, I try to use now um, uh, smaller Higar dilators in order to prevent a, an intimal damage of the pulmonary artery. I think this is very important to prevent postoperative thrombosis of the LPA. Um, and if required, and after a dilation, pulmonary artery is not big enough, then I patch these with a native pericardium. So that's what I do. Uh, now we are playing, and the Columbus, I think, group um, is following this approach. Now I'm, I'm also um, thinking about uh, what about pro, what are the pros and cons of intraoperative stenting of the left pulmonary artery, which I think is not an idea we should discard from the start, uh, since um, in our experience, 60 to 70 percent of all patients. This is the general hybrid population, not high-risk patients. General hybrid population, all hypoclass, 60 to 70 percent of these patients will need some kind of intervention, plus minus stent in the left pulmonary artery. If we can avoid these interventions by placing an intraoperative stent in the left pulmonary artery, that would be appreciated. The patient will have a smooth course after the operation. But whatever we do, if we have problems, possibly patient comes to from the operating room to the CICU. These patients are, in our experience from Germany, extubatable within six hours of surgery. It's not a problem. If we cannot extubate the patients, we have to find and address the problem. That should happen right away. It should not be a course of, oh, just wait with the patient to extubate them in three days. Gland circulation, delayed extubation, and already, and, and the uh, compromised left pulmonary artery will give you more problems in the long term than solved easily. So, see the problem, uh, detect it, and treat it postoperatively is is very crucial. It, if you have, it's interesting to hear about your medical approach to try to keep the ventricle as toned down, i.e., not as you know to try to keep the hypertrophy down to a, a minimum. And I wanted to ask when you're when you're looking at a patient that had a stent placed uh, in their PDA. Uh, what sort of gradient across that do you tolerate and when do you reintervene? Because I've seen that to be one of the key factors as far as a, a, a systemic ventricle thickening up. And then post-glen at the comprehensive stage two, you're in diastolic pressure is high and correspondingly your CVP is high and, and it's, a, it's a difficult situation. So clearly, I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you what sort of gradient is not okay anymore as far as that PDA stent. From our experience, we said uh, uh, velocity in the stent anterior rate um, of 3.1, 3.2 is a point where we think about reintervention uh, and where we think the stent gradient is becoming uh, more. But that is not really easy to pinpoint it to just the number. The echocardiography should be done by an experienced cardiologist who has done many hybrid echo, uh, transthoracic echocardiographies and match it with the clinical picture of the patients, which is the blood pressure, band gradients, um, and the course of the 
uh, gradient in the PDA uh, over the interstage period. This is very important. We, we do not intervene, or oh, the patient had always two meters per second, and today it's three, so oh, let's intervene. So you have to see it in, in the context of the patient, but it's very correct. So small stents uh, in a small patient, 1.7 kilogram patients, uh, let's say it's five millimeter stent uh, placed when the patient was 1.7 kilogram. Over the time, it becomes restrictive and um, interventions may be needed and should be done. This is, this is, this is what we do. We do not leave the patients alone uh, with, uh, with a small stent and increasing gradient over the stent. So this is, a, this is a crucial issue. And talking about that, do you discharge the patient between stages? Oh yes, I mean, uh, but again, I, I, so let's differentiate between the high-risk patients, as Joe already mentioned. These high-risk patients stay in the hospital. They're, can, they stay in the is, hospital. They, they, this, is, this is very hard to discharge safely, these patients home. Uh, when we talk about the 1.7 to uh, 2.5 kilogram range. But a, pa a patient who is 3 kilograms and has got a hybrid procedure can safely be discharged after bilateral pulmonary bands and stand placing home uh, with initial weekly visits in the hospital for at least one month after discharge and um, once in two weeks after that until comprehensive stage two. The most crucial point is if we don't follow these patients in the interstage period closely, then we will have a high interstage mortality. Great. It was very, very nice talking to you. This is a very interesting subject. Thank you again for speaking with me, and we enjoyed having you in our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Graves was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution.